Chapter 7. I'm Not Your Token Black Guy I loved high school. I absolutely loved high school. I think it was because with the exception of a handful of staff and maybe two students, everyone was black. You see, the high school I graduated from wasn't the first high school I had attended. The first high school I attended was pretty diverse. There were blacks, whites, Latinos, Asians, Koreans, Filipinos. I mean, if I had to go through the list of diverse groups at that school, it would sound a lot like the cafeteria montage from Mean Girls. It truly was a melting pot of every imaginable background. And it wasn't weird because the middle school I gone to was the same way. After the first semester, I transferred to the school I'd graduate from. At first, I thought it was weird that almost every student was black, but it didn't take long before I was able to really be myself, and I'd never fit in so well anywhere as I did at that school. The first college I went to back in the fall of 2006 was the same way. It was freeing to just be me. It would be a year later that I would come to realize that being surrounded by people who look like me was a luxury that I miss because I'd grown so accustomed to it. In the fall of 2007, I transferred to another college, Ohio Christian University. OCU, as it was fondly known as, was a predominantly white school. It was at OCU that I would learn what it meant to be the token black guy, and where I would learn a behavior that 13 years later, I'd still be trying to unlearn. From the Hyman Blog and Press Play Podcast, I'm J.D. Hyman. As a black man living in America, I am living proof that while all men were created equal, not all men are equal. We're here to dig into the American political system, explore and unearth experiences from the human condition, and be a catalyst for some hard conversations that need to be had. No matter what brought you here, I'm glad you came. Once again, my name is J.D. and this is the Hyman Podcast. Disclaimer, this episode is not like any other. It contains a lot of personal and specific details. I've done my best to write this episode in a way that can be meaningful to all audiences, including those who have no personal stake or firsthand account of any of the events mentioned in this episode. It is my hope that I can convey these ideas in a way as to not denigrate anyone, especially the people closest to me. I met some of my absolute best friends at OCU, and I have much respect for them as well as many of the staff and faculty, but those facts notwithstanding, there's still a story here about life and race and brokenness and healing, and that story needs to be told. Part 1. The Beginning of the End So picture it. It's the fall of 2007. Flip phones are all on the rage, and if yours has a 3 megapixel camera, then you, my friend, have the latest and the greatest. MySpace is still a thing, and Facebook is still trying to figure out that whole status situation. You're taking dirty mirror selfies with your new Sony Cybershot camera. The iPod click wheel was the most addictive thing, and everyone was wearing Livestrong bracelets. People were popping collars and wearing clothes with skulls on everything. VH1 and MTV haven't quite sold out to pop culture just yet. John and Kate were still together, and Degrassi fans were still reeling from the utterly shocking death of JT. And where was I? 
I was on a plane bound for Ohio. I touched down at what was then called Port Columbus International Airport late in the afternoon. When I landed, I was met by a woman who we'll call Amber. I guess I should mention some of the names in this episode have been changed to protect some people's anonymity. Not because they asked me to, but because I didn't seek their permission before including them as part of this retailing. Anyways, Amber met me at the airport and drove me 32 minutes south to a small town called Circleville. I'd never been to a town this small. Compared to where I grew up, I was a city boy and that's not saying much. Circleville would eventually grow on me and become a critical and integral part of my coming of age, but that's a story for a different time. As we drove through town, I couldn't help but notice there was nothing that symbolized that this was a college town. That's because it wasn't. It was a town that just happened to have a college in it. At the time, the incorporated city limits of Circleville were populated by some 13,300 people, of which 95% were white. Incorporation is just a fancy term that means that, in addition to the county sheriff, they also have city police and city laws and collect city taxes. Circleville is known for exactly two things. Ted Lewis, a musician, and their love for pumpkins, and more specifically, the pumpkin show, which actually attracts quite a bit of people. And while they don't exactly get Mardi Gras levels of attendance, it's still billed as the greatest free show on earth. It's a four-day street festival that features a variety of food and drinks that, well, you guessed it, are pumpkin-themed. So as we drove through town, I saw more pumpkin paraphernalia than I could count. Arriving on campus was sort of underwhelming. The buildings were either old and bland or new and bland, and to me the mixture seemed a bit out of touch. I think I expected a certain aesthetic that just wasn't present, or maybe it left long before I ever showed up. There was a chapel that was every bit dated on the inside as it was the outside, a library that was more or less a collection of religious texts and encyclopedias from a previous generation, and a newly constructed and also very bland gymnasium that was the crown jewel of the campus. I was surrounded by cornfields and a campus that seemed to grow from the fields themselves. Amber parked the van and said, welcome to OCU. This is where you're going to be staying. As I got out of the van, I was greeted by another student. At the time, I thought he was an RA. Turns out he was just really friendly. His name is Aaron Scheip, or just Scheip. And that's his real name. Shipe took me to my room and showed me around the dorm a bit and he'd help me unload my bags and after that he left me to my own devices. It would be a year and a half later before I would ever truly appreciate Shipe. And we'll get to that soon enough. Anyways, unpacked, I sat on the sheetless bed in the cold room and stared across at the barren built-in desk and contemplated the decision to enroll in school here. I was 500 miles away from home, and for a moment, I was thinking of making a run for it. At some point, I found myself outside, milling about in the incoming freshman class, and I noticed exactly one thing. There weren't a lot of people around who looked like me. In fact, I could count them all in two hands. This wasn't a concern of mine. By all intents and purposes, this was a Christian school. At the very least, I thought I'd be safe from a world of vapid racism. 
I couldn't have been more wrong. The demographic of the student body was predominantly white, about 95% to be exact. And of those, about 88% of them came from private Christian schools or were homeschooled. The other 7% were made up of a combination of kids who'd gone to public school and were heavily involved in church or were local to the town and just wanted to go to college close by. But it was that 88% that would be the problem. They made up the majority of the student body. And while many of them were our friends, so many of them racially offended me almost every day. At the time, I didn't know how bad it affected me. But it was that racial offense that caused me to act out. You might be asking yourself, what happened? Well, it started with the question askers. Do black people wear sunscreen? What's a do-rag? What kind of shampoo do you use? Is it because you're black? You don't talk black. Why do black people like watermelon? What is grape drink? Why do black people like fried chicken? Are all black people loud? Do you like being black? What kind of lotion do you use? Why do black people like cocoa butter? Why do black people put hot sauce on everything? You don't play basketball, but you're black. Don't do that, you're black. Do the cops always pull you over? Why are black guys always brushing their hair? Where do you buy your clothes? Do you know anybody named Shanene? What does your hair feel like? What does bougie mean? Have you ever been to the ghetto? What does ghetto mean? Yeah, those were actual questions I was being asked. If anything, I thought it was ghetto that I was being asked questions like that. But those were just some of the questions. I was being asked a lot more. Some that I'm not even going to repeat. There were other comments too. Again, I'm not going to repeat all of them. Some were just downright disparaging. It got bad, but I put on a brave face. I never knew what it felt like to be a minority until OCU. It wasn't that I was a minority. I think I could have handled that. It was the fact that most of the people made me feel like a minority. I later found out that I wasn't the only black person who was being subject to having his blackness questioned. The year I came to OCU was the year that there was a noticeable influx in the black population on campus. And because complaints were being lodged, a newly hired staff member who was also black was tasked with developing minority programming and bridging the gap between their dominant whiteness and our apparent blackness. I thought this would be the cure from all the questions, but it wasn't. The black students were getting fed up. I was getting fed up, but apparently I was only one of a few whose fed upness remained on the inside. And that led to more questions. And along with the questions came the permission seekers. The conversation would go something like this. Them. Would you get offended if I said, insert racist elucidation? Me. Hmm. I'm thinking, yes. Them. Really? Why? Me. Because that's demonstrably racist. Them. It is? At this point, I would usually walk away because either they were playing dumb 
which I thought was sad, or they really were dumb, which coincidentally was also very sad. The permission seekers to me didn't seem inherently racist, but the things they sought permission for began to burden me. They had, at this point, been effectively shunned by all the other black people, and I was all that was left. They needed someone to ask their questions to. I don't know why they felt the need to ask their questions to me or seek permission from me, but it was exhausting. It was almost like I was placed on campus for the sheer purpose of being their personal black encyclopedia. Encyclopedia Black. The Black Pages. There were guys in my dorm who made overtly racist jokes. Some of them saved them just for me to hear. A group of them would sometimes surround me and one would tell his joke. And I'm not sure if they thought they were actually funny. Sometimes I said something, most times I didn't. But they would usually follow up with the all too famous, I'm not racist, I have a black friend. Sometimes it was a black family member. But I started to grow numb to it. This was just the way some people were. I felt like I was on their territory and there was nothing I could do about it. I surrounded myself with a few close friends, a few people who I could trust with my being black and not worry that they would hurt me. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. But in the back of my head, I sought to find a solution and I could only come up with one. Get fiercely tough and strike them down. A year later, it was still happening, but by that point, I was tired. I was tired of having to avoid certain people. I was tired of pretending to be okay when clearly I wasn't. I was tired of people treating me like I was the one black person that was okay with their semi-racist, fully racist, and sometimes downright ignorant comments, questions, and jokes. It reached a tipping point. Somewhere between chapel and a trip to Taco Bell, I had become the angry black man, and that wasn't good for anyone. More on that when we come back. Hello, Brooks here with the Books with Brooks monthly book club podcast. We read one book a month, and then we talk about it. Books like Stephen King's The Shining or Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. If you're on the hunt for book recommendations and enjoy sparkling conversation, come read along with us and then listen in. Hey everyone, it's Cameron Justice, co-host of the Oranges, Orange, or Browns podcast. Make sure you check us out for everything Browns. We've got you covered before the game, after the game. Here are our takes, here are our feedback, here are our criticisms, and our praises. If you like the Browns, you're going to love this podcast. And I'm Dennis Maniloff, co-host along with the roadman, Kenny Rhoda, of the Next Man Up podcast, part of the Press Play Podcast Network. Roadman and I do a deep dive into Browns, Indians, Cavs, Ohio State, and anything else that's on the sports fan's mind. Part 2. The Rise and Fall of the Angry Black Man I like to call it the Angry Black Man season. And here's the thing. Not many people actually know how the Angry Black Man came to be. So, for the first time, on the record... Here's how he was born. Every summer, the university selects students to travel throughout the summer, serving as camp counselors at various camps. Camp teams are a big deal, and it's also a great way to cut back on your tuition bill. Okay, great. The call for counselors came out, and by and large, I ignored them. 
But then I was encouraged to apply as a means to bring more diversity to the teams, and despite my initial protests, I went along with it. I interviewed, and to my surprise, I was offered the job. The first camp I was assigned to was a junior high camp. This is the summer of 2008. The director was a guy named, uh, we'll call him Bruce. He was a short, stocky guy with beady eyes who wore shirts that were two sizes too big. He was a middle-aged man who was teetering further downhill the older he got. He had gray eyes that I assumed once were blue and they were accented by the gray in his hair. He was pleasant for the most part. He told bad jokes that were supposed to be puns and his sarcasm was always dripping with snark. As it turns out, he was also an OCU alum. The kids were between 5th and 8th grade, but more so on the younger side. We called this camp free time because, well, the kids had so much free time. I didn't totally hate the experience. In fact, I sort of enjoyed it. I had a great time and I got to meet other college students who were also serving as counselors for their respective schools and other people who had just grown up at the camp. Anyways, the week is over and we head home. In between camps, I work in the admissions office. I leave my workstation to fold some letters on a bigger workspace and, and walks Bruce. I look up and greet him and we have one of those moments, you know, where you reconnect with another person after having just seen them just days earlier. There were handshakes and good to see yous and he says he just needs to use a computer. I direct him to the workstations. He disappears around the corner and emerges a few minutes later to grab something off the printer and he's on his way. And about 20 minutes later, my boss Tina comes to get me and she's got an uncomfortable look on her face. She takes me into the conference room. There's two other people already seated, Bruce and my boss's boss who is also the vice president of enrollment. I'm confused, but not concerned. Tina and I sit. The VP has a piece of paper in his hands, and then there are some questions. The first is, did an OCU student drop the F-bomb? Yeah, but that was an accident. Now remember, this is a small Christian school, so the F-bomb is a big deal. And then the questions get downright crazy. Did you hit one of the campers? No, that's outrageous. Did you denigrate OCU to some of the other staff? Again, outrageous. But that triggered a flashback to the only time I remember talking about the school. I remember sitting with some of the other staff and this one girl, her name is Janetta. She's asking about OCU and what it's like. As counselors, we are also charged with promoting the college. And I remember talking up the school to her because at the time I thought she was cool. I wanted her to come, or so I thought. Next question. Did you complain about being at camp to the other staff? Again, categorically untrue. And what is he reading? Bruce was being very supportive, doing his due diligence, and of course my boss is in my corner. She'd only known me for a few weeks, but she was well aware of my character. Where were these questions coming from? After all, it was the VP who picked our team up from camp at the end of that week. Did he call Bruce in to confirm or disconfirm some information about me? Did he hear something when he came to pick us up? Has someone called him? At the conclusion of this meeting, it was decided that a senior admissions rep would attend the next camp to make sure I stayed in line. I walked back to my office, reeling from this interrogation I'd just been subject to. Why would someone think I did all those awful things? Who would? I stopped. 
when I got back to my workstation. An email was up on the screen. Bruce never closes email. I should note, it's wrong to read someone's email and that is not something I would ever do, but the subject line was J.D. Hyman, so obviously I read it. It was a scathing report. Bruce had written it. There was even a part where he said I mouthed an obscenity to him from across the room. I was in utter shock and disbelief, but what was more shocking was the fact that this email was not only addressed to the VP of admissions, but the president of the university, the superintendent of the church denomination that sponsored the school, and a host of other important people, many of whom I'd never met. I finished that summer on eggshells, and at that point, I saw two options. The one where I would try and get along with everyone, and the one where I didn't care. I chose option two. It lasted from the end of the summer of 2008 until the spring of 2009. My witty comebacks soon became a defense mechanism. As soon as someone says something to me that I didn't like, I shot off at the mouth something so outrageous and just downright mean that some people were actually left in tears. Growing up in a family of wisecracks taught me to be quick on my toes and I took no prisoners. I prided myself on being able to bring a person to tears with just a few words, but so what? I didn't start this, but I was certainly going to end it. And in my mind, no one was innocent. This went on for quite some time, and like any war waged, there were casualties. Relationships were fractured, friendships destroyed, and by the time people became aware of the problem, I was so far gone that there was no coming back. I wanted people to know that I was not their token black guy. I was not there to meet the diversity quota. I wanted separation of church and state. The question stopped. In fact, a lot of communication stopped for the most part. People had come to the realization that their gross ignorance was more damaging than they thought. Their hearts, however well-intentioned, didn't see the pain it was inflicting, and they sought me out to apologize, one by one. But by that point, my own hubris was going to be my downfall. The angry black man started to get unwanted attention and opportunities that should have otherwise have been mine for the taking were lost. I'd now found myself on everyone's radar and when you go to a small school, that's not really a good thing. I was at the point where I was going to lose the only thing I really had going for me, my own good name. The angry black man taught me that I could stand up for myself, but it also showed me that standing up for myself doesn't help my cause if no one knows why I'm so angry. I wanted people to see me for me, for who I am on the inside. I wanted an identity outside the token black guy, but now I wanted was an identity outside of the angry black man. To his credit, the angry black man kept me safe. He was guarded in so many ways. He had so many automatic defense systems. Chief among them, he kept people away at all times. The angry black man, however, isn't conducive to society. I found it rather ironic that the very people who drove me to the edge would also be the people who would absolve themselves of any responsibility and drive me to the edge in the first place. It would be almost 10 years later before any one of them ever apologized to me. When I was ready to come in from the cold, when I was ready to tear down the angry black man and try and live my life as myself, I found it incredibly difficult. I'd burn a lot of bridges by that point, and recidivism was much more likely than restorative justice. 
but I had to try. And then Shipe showed up at the right time, as always. And I asked him, Shipe, how do I come back from this? And his answer, which has stuck with me all these years later, the words that championed me to action, the words that caused me to look past my own grief and into the hearts of the people closest to me, the words that would help me to remember that other people's ignorance can't define me. He said, JD, you have to be a person so different that no one recognizes you. So, in light of the racist comments, the questions, the permission seekers, Bruce and all his friends, I had to make the difficult decision that I wasn't going to let that define me. I won't be defined by other people. I am black and proud. And while the angry black man still lives inside me, I'm encouraged by the fact that I don't need him. My race is not just the definition of me. It's, it's not just who I am, it's what I am. And I am proud of what I am. Some white people think that knowing a black person affords them certain rights and privileges to say and do certain things that might otherwise be offensive. Many of my white friends are guilty of this, and maybe I should have called them out on it all those years ago, but I didn't. I bottled it all up instead, and when the dam broke, it was bad for everyone, myself included. Overall, I learned that even though the angry black man kept me safe, he had no overall ameliorating effect on the people around me. And to some degree, that has to matter too. Despite everything going on in our society, and maybe this makes me different from most people, but I still have hope in mankind. I still believe that there are good people out there who want to do the right thing, who want to fight for equality. I'm fighting for equality, and I know that I can never find that if those people don't exist. So, here's to hoping I find them sooner rather than later. My name is J.D. Hyman, and this is The Hyman Podcast. I'll see you next time. This episode of The Hyman Podcast was written and produced by myself, with additional copy editing and story editing by Emily Stacy. Kevin Aki is our brand designer, and the music for this episode was composed and produced by Jim Yosef and Raphael Crux. Additional music was licensed from Epidemic Sound. The Hyman Podcast is produced in part by Press Play Podcast. Press Play is staffed by Chase Smith, our CEO and fearless leader. I serve as the Chief Operating Officer, and Brooks May is the Head of Content and Development. To learn more about the network, sponsorships, guest appearances, or if you're interested in launching your own podcast on our network, visit us on the web at www.pressplaypodcast.com. Promotional consideration for this season of the Hyman Podcast was paid for by Blank Shell Gaming, Grant Furnace Designs, and Buds and Bloom New York. To learn more about this podcast, our mission and vision, as well as our sponsors, please visit us on the web at www.jdhyman.com.